I chose our scripture reading for two reasons. And the first one is, is that as a prophetic people, sometimes we tend to miss, or at least to misappropriate at times, that we teach that prophecy, if we teach that prophecy, is about predicting and knowing the future. It really isn't, is it? Jesus says that the only way to truly know the future is to know what? Is to know the past. Because knowing the past is the only way that you know and I know that a prophecy has truly been fulfilled. That's how we know that a prophecy is fulfilled is when it has been fulfilled. And that's what he said. He said, I tell you this now. I tell you this now, that night in the upper room before it occurs, so that when it does, then you will what? Then you'll believe. You'll have an opportunity to believe. You'll have, you will, will know that the prophecy was true because it already has been fulfilled. So to know the future as people of prophecy is to know what? Is to know our past. The other reason is that, that I picked this is that what it says about his disciples, how they will carry out their mission and how he'll give them what he will give them uh, after tomorrow's crucifixion, three days resurrection, 40 days or so that he'll spend with them before making the true exchange of his bodily presence to a promised spiritual presence in each and every one of them. In other words, that we then become, or anyone who, who believes, the disciples themselves, or all of us who came to believe because of the disciples' word, we now become the bodily presence of Jesus Christ on this planet to carry out his mission. And we were told how it would be done. And he says, this is how you should uh, feel. This is the, the DNA, this is the impetus of your mission. If I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, then you also ought what? Ought to wash another's. For I've set you an example that you also should do as I have done to you. Very truly, I tell you, servants are not greater than their master, nor are messengers greater than the one who sent them. As disciples of Christ, fighting a battle in a hostile planet, we do not get caught up or take the world's definition of greater and lesser. What makes us greater is we serve. We do not lord over, we serve. We're sacrificial. We fight and we wage war completely opposite than what the world does than what we've learned that the dragon tells his church is okay to do. Our power is not exercised over, our power is actually exercised under. In his book, The Myth of a Christian Nation, Dr. Gregory Boyd lays out the theology of the church of the Lamb that was slain as a power under theology versus the temptation to give way to exert power over and he uses this story, he uses this narrative as the most perfect illustration of over and under. He says the kingdom of God lifestyle was also beautifully illustrated just before the Last Supper. John tells us that Jesus knew that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God, John 13, three. So what did Jesus do with all this divine authority? He got up from the table took off his outer robe and tied a towel around himself. Then he poured water into a basin, began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was tied around him. Here is Jesus possessing all power in heaven and earth, knowing he's about to be betrayed and die a horrible death. And what does he do? He assumes the position of a common household servant and washes his disciples' dirty, smelly feet. The very people he knows will betray and forsake him before morning. This is how power is wielded in the kingdom of God. If you have all power in heaven and earth, use it to wash the feet of someone who you know will betray you. In serving like this, Jesus declares to all who are willing to hear that he, and including us, we will rule not by a sword, 
but by a towel. That's the only weapon we take into this battle, a towel. So if you're visiting with us today, we have started walking through uh, this entire uh, period in history to, in order to try to figure out our present and our future. Up until now, we've learned that the, the dragon, the god of this other church, is angry, is he not? And what's he angry at? He's angry because he can't get at the child. So he's gonna go after the woman. He's gonna go after the church of that child, the church that has made uh, or decided to make that child our God. He is our God, is he not? This lamb that was slain. And we stand with all the universe according to Revelation 4 and 5. We sing holy, holy, holy. He is the one who is worthy. That's us. And we learned last week that those in the woman's uh, church, those uh, within the body uh, of that woman were identified by two marks. Those that keep the commandments of God and those that hold to the testimony of Jesus. The testimony of Jesus being this, that the commandments of God go beyond the mere transcript or tablets. That Sabbath goes beyond that. That actually, in order to be able to hold the testimony of Jesus and keep the commandments, it is, it is an all-encompassing love. Jesus was asked, what are the greatest commandments? He said, love God, love your neighbor as yourself. In this, you fulfill, not just keep, but you fulfill the entire law and all the prophets. That's us. That's how we're identified in the middle of this war. So we move on to the war then, and how the dragon plans to engage in this war. How's he gonna pull this off? How's he gonna convince the world that he is the true God, and that he can be a victor, or is a victor, or will be a victor in this war, this war that we call the great controversy? Well remember, he believes he can win this with his own values. And the main difference between the dragon and the lamb is power and how they exert that power. The dragon is trying to prove that power over works and that power over will bring victory. See, because he thinks he learned a lesson about that war in heaven that we read about a couple weeks ago. Because it, uh, he believes that he was not what? That he wasn't strong enough that there was no longer a place for him in heaven. He believes that he simply was not strong enough. He didn't have the numbers, he didn't have the might. So in order to engage in this war with the woman's children, you and me, he decides he needs help. He decides he'll do just what anybody would do on a planet if they're facing what seems to be a superior force, he's going to go get help. He's going to put together a team. I have to say he has a pretty good philosophy. When the going gets tough, go to the beach. I, I kind of like that, don't you? It's been a philosophy of mine for a long time. If the going gets tough, I'm going to the beach. But this beach is something else. The dragon stood on the sand of the seashore. What happens on this beach is going to quake the rest of the earth. It will change completely the world and basically change the church along with it. What happens on this beach will matter for the rest of our time here. I saw a beast coming up out of the sea having 10 horns and seven heads and on his horns were 10 diadems or crowns if you will and on his heads were what? blasphemous names. He stands on the seashore looking out over the sea. Now remember in prophetic language, is he looking at an ocean right now? No, he's looking at people. He's looking at all the world's people, by the way. Remember, sea in prophecy is people. So what he's doing is that he's looking out upon the world. He's looking at all humanity at that particular time. 
And he even tells us what time that would be, actually, the time in which he begins this, that he starts this. He stands on the seashore looking and observing how the people have already carried themselves, how the kingdom of the world has already waged and won war, all of them up until this point. He's not very attractive, the beast, but he looks just like who? He looks just like the dragon. We met him back in chapter 12. There was another sign in heaven, a great red dragon with seven heads and 10 horns and seven diadems on his heads. This beast looks exactly like the dragon except for one thing. There's a body that's mentioned. See, the dragon is this. Satan himself is this description right here. The beast, there's one more thing added to that and that is its body is described. And how is his body described? It looks like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear. Its mouth was like a, li was like a lion's mouth. And the dragon gave it his power, his throne, and great authority. You don't even have to say that. Why? Because the rest of his appearance looks exactly like him. But how is that dragon power carried out? In this particular case, at this time in history, it's carried out by all of the people that make up those animals. Where have we heard of this lion, this leopard, and this bear before? Daniel chapter seven. All of them are the, the nations, if you will. All of them are the nations that lead up to this. This is the zoo that Adventists can't wait to go to when we're studying Daniel. All the earthly kingdoms that ruled up until this particular point in history. And I want you to notice, I, I think that the order in which he says it, it means a lot as to what's happening right now. Notice, he says it backwards. Because the, the leopard lined up with the, with the uh, chest of silver, which was what? Which was Greece, right? And, and, and the bear lined up with, what was, no, I'm sorry. <laughs> the leopard lined up with the abdomen of bronze. The bear lines up with the chest of silver, which was Medo-Persia. And the lion lines up with the head of gold, which is who? Babylon. He's going backwards. He's looking back at Earth's history, at all of the nations that at one time ruled the known civilized world, beginning with Babylon, which places him in a particular time. In Daniel 7, all three of these beasts have what would be considered a zoological classification. Bear, lion, leopard. It can be recognized. There's something wrong with each and every one of them. They're, they're kind of mutated in, in, in a way, but at least they can be recognized. But after Greece, there's this beast that Daniel can't recognize. It's just a terrible beast, he says. It has iron feet and legs and it, has, and it has iron teeth and it smashes everything that it comes up against. So the dragon is living in that particular time of that fourth beast and he's now bringing, that, he's bringing his beast up. In other words, he now is enlisting, he will enlist, enlist earthly power in order to carry this out. This beast has all the qualities, say, uh, spiritual in a little s, if you will, spiritual qualities of the dragon, the God that claims to be the God of the church, this little s, but it also shows of what the human element is in all of it. He will enlist human power, and that human power that they all had in common from the time that, that Nebuchadnezzar conquered the world, and it all gave way. They all had one thing in common. They were all able to rule the world because they were all what? They were all powerful enough. Babylon's the mouth, by the way. Remember that. Babylon is the mouth. Babylon is, is what gives this beast its authority, if you will, because remember, the authority comes from the word, right? So Babylon's mouth, we'll get back to that. But this won't be the whole team, not just this one beast. 
that comes up at this particular time. There'll be another one, a little different in the, in the, in the appearance. Uh, looks a little less like the dragon and a lot like who? A lot like the lamb, it says. I saw another beast that rose out of the earth. It had two horns like a what? Like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. Now its appearance is not so much like the dragon, but its authority all comes from where? from speaking the word, and it all comes from the dragon. It comes up out of the earth, not out of the sea, and it looks like the lamb, but when it speaks, all of its authority comes from the dragon. It says so too. It exercises all the authority of the first beast on its behalf, makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound had been healed. So the dragon now has a team. What's the plan? The dragon has a team. He has these two beasts, and there's him. Notice, how many on the team? Three. You have a dragon, which is a false god, if you will, or say the false father. You have the beast from the sea, which is, a, uh, it, it, it is the human authority of the dragon's power. So a false son of what? A false son of man. And then you have the, the other beast that comes up out of the land. And, and it, it, it gives it breath. It creates an image. And we'll see later in 13 that after it creates the image of the dragon, it gives it breath. So now you even have a false breath or a false what? A false spirit. We're staring at the dragon's idea of the Trinity. So now we know how the war will be fought. He will do anything that it takes to replicate and duplicate God and the Trinity up to a point, up to a point. This is what we're fighting. In fact, it gets so close that the only way to be able to tell the two apart is what they are willing to do to get you to worship them. That's really the only way to tell it apart. It's two churches, it's two philosophies, it's two trinities, if you will. It's two authorities. It's two ways of worship. The only way to tell them apart is how each of these gods uh, elicits the worship, if you will. The dragon is simple. The dragon's authority, they worship it. Why? Why do they worship the dragon's authority? They worship the dragon for he had given his authority to the beast. They worship the beast saying, who is like the beast and who can what? Who can fight against it? In other words, it has overwhelming what? Overwhelming might. In verse 12, it says, he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence. He makes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose fatal wound was healed. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so the image of the beast could even speak and cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. Look at the language of the beast. Who can fight against it? His might can't be overwhelmed. He makes the earth and those who dwell in it worship the first beast. He causes those who would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. Who can fight, make, cause? Now you see the strategy of the church of the dragon. He doesn't ask for anybody's worship. He what? He forces it. which all we've learned in the last four weeks, how does that happen on a planet like this? It's the way of this planet, is it not? We're taught that we are victims, if you will, or, or hapless riders of this evolutionary force of this planet. You know, it preys on the weak, makes people stronger makes species stronger. So the dragon takes all the power of this world and uses it perfectly to a spiritual means and to produce a spiritual hoax on anybody who claims to believe in God. A lamb that was slain, his church, the one who created us in his image 
And by the way, what does it mean to be created in the image of God? It means that you were created what? You were created free. You have free will. Nobody can exercise power over you. You are created to be free. So in a way, you could actually say that the, in the church of the lamb that was slain, the lamb only asks you for your worship, asks you to decide whether or not he is worthy of your worship. And I'll go even further and say that I don't think he even really asks because actually we're not even allowed, I guess would be, we're not even allowed to preach the gospel until we're asked to. You want to talk about somebody who will not go near somebody's free will. We don't present the gospel to somebody who doesn't want to hear it. We're supposed to present the gospel to somebody who what? Who asks. Peter said, always be prepared. Always be prepared with an apology. And when it says, when it's the word apology, it's, it's the word that we use in apologetics and not to be saying sorry for anything, but apologetics to be able to explain these huge spiritual uh, conclusions that you and I live by in ways that other people can understand. And he says, always have one ready anytime anybody asks you about the hope that lies within you. We don't tell anybody about hope until we're what? until we're asked. The church of the lamb that was slain won't even go near that. So the dragon with his counterfeit beast congregations, they force. Looking at history, did it happen? Sure. We go from the beach to a bridge. I think it's kind of ironic that it began at a bridge or at least around another body of water. It's just a bridge, it's still there. It's called the Milvian Bridge. I took that picture in 2010, actually 12. I took that picture in 2012. It's just a bridge across the river where Rome sits in the middle. The river is kind of around it and there's these series of bridges that go out to Rome uh, proper, to go out to the, to the suburbs. This one bridge is the last one that's left open. Those four statues are four statues to each of the entrance to the bridge. The one that, that got me, the one that I really noticed was the one up in that corner up there. It's a statue of John the Baptist. Why at this bridge? A, a statue of John the Baptist. In the year 312, the Roman Empire is fragmented with two emperors, Constantine and Maxentius. They're both trying to unify Rome behind them. They both have fought a series of other generals who were looking for the same thing over the past, say, five years or so, and this is it. They're the last two, and they meet at this bridge. The night before the battle, Constantine claims to have had a dream, and he hears a voice say, with this sign, you shall conquer. And he looks up into the sun, and in the middle of the sun is the superimposition of a key and a row, two Greek letters that come together to form a cross. With this sign, you shall be victorious. So before the battle, he orders the image painted on all the shields and banners of his army. And supposedly before the battle, he marches the army through the river first to baptize them. And then of course the next day they what? they win a decisive victory. With the water that they were just baptized in, now red with blood from the other army. And of course this changes the course of history. This actually is the beach. This is it. It changes the empire, it changes Christianity, it changes the world. He flies the banner from victory to victory and a year later he puts out the Edict of Milan which provides and grants tolerance to Christianity and it eventually leads to become the official religion of the Roman Empire. Now all you have to do to become Christian is to be conquered by Rome. And Rome has conquered what? The entire world. Remember, Daniel can't even recognize what that beast is. 
All he knows about the beast was that it tore up everything that it ever came in contact with, destroyed everything it ever came in contact with, and it keeps Daniel up at night. So the church has now a civil and military power coming together with, its ecclesiast- with her ecclesiastical power. All the power of the Roman Empire, all the ecclesiastical spiritual power of the Christian church known on the planet and bring it all together in a brand new method of evangelism that we call force. And were they successful? 1260 years. So much to where the true church has to be described as a remnant and that actually has to hide for that century and a quarter and worship in caves and any place where they could try to elude the persecution of the dragon. So again, persecution, water, people, complete religious intolerance from about 500 all the way up until 15, actually almost exactly 1517. Just some highlights of of all of that. The first crusade, 1096 to 1099. Second crusade, 1147 to to 49. Uh, The first crusade, actually, Urban II, Council of Clement, November 27th, 1095. Thousands take up the cross. They actually take up the cross and cry, God wills it, as they go on this crusade to kill the infidels and take back the Holy Land for the church to which it truly belongs. The second crusade, the third crusade, 1188 to 92, the fourth crusade, 1202 to 04. In 1212, there's the children's crusade. Thousands of children die from hunger and disease or sold into slavery as they're marched from place to place to place. Because this, this pope thought that if he could kill the children, he would kill the infidels. In 1208, Innocent III orders crusades against the Albigenses. By now, they number over a million in Europe, and in that 21 years, nearly all of them are massacred. They escape over the Alps to join the Waldenses. By the way, the Waldensians have their own crusade. Beginning in 1487, it goes all the way to 1560. But I want you to note that I stopped the timeline at 1517, and we'll talk a little bit about that more next week. Our fallen natures, this new paradigm of power, our nature seeks its solution in the force paradigm, the force in the coercion that plays on the fear that you and I have, uh, have always had. Uh, from the day that we were born. From the day that we were born, this planet is something that we need to be protected against. Is there anything, anything more helpless than a human baby? Immediately, this place is a place to be feared. Even today, I mean, they, they, they take this poll about every decade or so, and every time they take it, number one fear of all people living in America at that particular time, death and public speaking. It's a place to be feared. We fear what? We fear death. I know what I'm supposed to do now. It's, I'm supposed to help us feel better. I'm supposed to let us off the hook. And I'm supposed to do that uh, to help deal with the history by distancing ourselves from that church that was this beast from the sea. She's clearly identified, right? And she has a name, doesn't she? But the name I'm supposed to utter now and so that we could feel better about othering them, so that we could become not them, right? That's what I'm supposed to do now. It's what we have been doing for 178 years. Wearing out 
or persecuting the saints, changing times and laws, speaking blasphemous names. Did she do all that? Yes, she did. But everything I read from 3.12 all the way to 15.17 that she did by her lonesome, but in the last three centuries of that 1260-year prophecy, she now has the cooperation of every Protestant church on the planet. Well, nearly every Protestant church on the planet. The Reformation does nothing to attack this medieval philosophy that you have to have civil power in order to establish a spiritual church. So now the beast gets the cooperation of Protestants. So let me ask you this. How is it that we still just name one particular church the beast when every bit of it up until this point in the 1260 years that the beast ruled over the world, that it had Protestant cooperation. Why is it we still pick on the one? Because they bought into the same fatal flaw of the medieval church. Force, fear, and persecution. They participate in the wearing out of the saints for the last 300 years of the 1260-year prophecy. So count back from 1798, 300 years, and now it's all of us, Protestants and Catholics. And we know that the medieval church gave way to the Reformation church. The Reformation gives way to the Enlightenment church. The Enlightenment church gives way to the colonial church. The colonial church gives way to um, the American church, yes. And by the time that the American church comes along, there's only one little brief respite, maybe of only about 20 years, that now all of a sudden, we've got another beast. Which, by the way, we don't talk about. When we talk about this beast, we kind of push it off to the future. So this beast doesn't really become beastly until it makes us worship on the wrong day. And so it's a whole lot easier to look back and to blame others and feel better about that and become so myopic in our last day living that we're ignoring this second beast and what's going on right now. I don't know sometimes how we really believe we can get off in this century still pointing fingers to a particular congregation of a church that existed back then that has nothing to do with that beast power anymore. Is it just so we could get that, you know, that familiar high of self-righteousness as we try to go out and win other people to Christ? We forget the words of the prophecies, historic and now. We forget who's included in the words of these prophecies. The beast I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's. Its mouth was like a lion's mouth. The dragon gave it its power and all of its great authority. All of it. All of its great authority. I saw one of the heads that had been slain and his fatal wound was healed and the whole earth was amazed and followed the beast. Who worships such a beast? How many? The whole what? The whole earth. The whole earth wonders. And by the way, the only people that don't are the ones that overcome by the blood of the lamb and are written in the lamb's book of life. And how did they get there? By force, by fear, by coercion, by being morally or righteously superior to another church? By the blood of the who? By the blood of the lamb. Who worships such a beast? The whole world gathers at the beach. In other words, who's culpable in this? The whole world. You ever read in Daniel 9? Daniel wants to know the meaning of the prophecy in Daniel 8 because it's a pretty shocking prophecy in his mind. 
you know, this, this, this 2,400 years, my goodness, you know, without God's presence on the planet, it, it keeps him up at night. It makes him sick. So uh, in chapter nine, he begins a prayer and he prays and he asks, he prays and he says, he says, please forgive us our sin. What I love about it is that this righteous man, Daniel, the one who dared to be a Daniel, the one that we teach our kids to be a Daniel, who has done everything that he can to stand by God, he still includes himself with the rest of his nation as a what? As a sinner. He doesn't, he doesn't pray like, you know, Lord, I thank you I'm not like this tax collector over here. Nobody asked me why I called this series the way I did. I'm, probably you didn't even notice that the series has a title. <laughs> I called it a fourth angel's message. Why do you wonder? Because, you know, you, th- you thought we were going to talk about the, third, the three angels' message, and we will. We're going to uh, Revelation 14 after we finish up Revelation 13. We've got to spend some time in Revelation 13, some more time. But, but I'm just saying we'll get there. But I want to I talk about this fourth angel's message, this fourth angel that we have a tendency to, uh, I don't know, maybe ignore when it comes to this. See, in chapter 17, you're given a completely different sign or a different way of looking at what is happening in, in Revelation 13. Remember I told you, uh, I've shared with you before that Revelation is, is a series of scenes that all depict the same thing. They all begin at a certain point and they all end at a certain point in history and each of them is a new way of looking at it. The seals is the way that the church sees uh, the past, the, the present, and history. The, the trumpets is the way that the world sees that. The bulls are a combination of both. Revelation 13 has its counterpart in Revelation 17. This beast, both of these beasts rising up. So there's a different way of of looking at it, a different way of describing it. And what John does as a revelator is, is, is he changes the scenery. You know, it's a seven act play and he changes it. He changes the scenery in it is all he does. It's the same story, it's the same history, and it's the same future. So in Revelation 17, it starts this way. It says, one of the seven angels, so here he is, a fourth angel, if you will, another angel. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, come and I will show you the judgment of the great harlot. By the way, if you read it in the Revised Standard and the New Revised Standard, be careful because they don't use the word harlot. They use the word that, that uh, I, I, I literally, I cannot say it from the pulpit on Sabbath morning. I, you know, I'm just saying that you know, if, you, if you want the full force of it, read it in the New Revised Standard Version. The great harlot who's seated on many waters. If she's seated on many waters, what does that mean? She has control over many what? Many peoples. With whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication. In other words, the powers, the political and civil powers and military powers have committed fornication with the wine of whose fornication the inhabitants of the earth have become drunk. That power that's come together, the whole earth is drunk on it. How many? The whole earth and the whole world wonders. So he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. By the way, where is, uh, where is the woman supposed to be? Supposed to be where? Hiding. In the wilderness. Taken into the wilderness, I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names. It had seven heads and ten horns. That beast that we saw rise up in Revelation 13, this woman is seated on it. She's riding on it. The woman was clothed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of the abominations and the impurities of her fornication. The fornication that woman is having with who? With the worldly, earthly powers. Political, civil, municipal, military. And on her forehead was written a name, a mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of harlots, mother of prostitutes, and of earth's abominations. And John says, and I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of the saints and the blood of the witnesses to Jesus. And when I saw her, I was greatly amazed. 
In other words, he said, when I saw her, I greatly wondered. See, Babylon is so seductive, so tempting, these two powers that come together, that even John wonders after her. Why is he so amazed? Why is he wondering about this power here? Why is it so seductive that even the disciple who Jesus loved is wondering along with the rest of the world? The whole world wonders after the beast. Why is it? It's because of who she is. He recognizes her. He's in the wilderness. He recognizes her. The word woman is the most common woman in Greek. Uh, the, the word for woman in all the Greek. It appears 250 times, and it's used for all kinds of women. In Revelation, though, the one time that it's the next, the, 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 if, if you're to go back from Revelation 17 and, and make your way back, there's only two times that it's used. One time in Revelation 14, and then the other time in Revelation 12. The woman that John sees was the woman that he saw in 12 who was clothed all in white standing on the moon, clothed with the sun, wearing a crown of stars. It's the church. It's the same woman. The dragon was enraged with the woman. That's the next time you see the word woman used if you go back from Revelation 17. And by the way, she's supposed to be being nourished in the wilderness. The angel takes John to that wilderness. He's standing in the same place that he was standing when he saw the church giving birth to the gospel of Jesus. So is he shocked? You know, is, that, is, that, is, is, is it because she's the church? And notice now, she's gone from being pursued by the dragon. She's gone from the dragon wanting to devour her child and to devour her. Well, she, well now she's riding on him. She's got him trained. She's perfectly usurped his power. She has perfectly prostituted her spiritual authority for the power of the world. And she's brought the dragon to all her worshipers. Used his power, his force, his fear, his coercion, superiority through intimidation. Now is John wondering uh, like, oh, whoa, is me. How could that happen? She was so pure and full of Jesus when I saw her last. I don't think that's what the wonder is about because if that's what the wonder is about, if it was righteous indignation that John was feeling, why does the angel react this way? He says, why do you wonder? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and the ten horns. Why do you wonder? If his reaction was righteous indignation, the angel would have said, yeah, isn't it incredible? but it's a good thing that you're not there. It's a good thing that you're not involved in this. John is wondering and amazed. It's the same word that is used when he says the whole world wonders after the beast. John is experiencing that wonder too. And by the way, we kind of paint it that he's, that he's attracted to her. That's that the, his wonder and amazement is that he's attracted to her. This isn't being attracted in a sexual way. She's not dressed seductively as to seduce in a sexual way. She's dressed to seduce as wondering about this power. It looks good even to the most faithful of believers and he's wondering about it. And the reason that he is, you know why? It's because he's tired. In just a few months maybe, maybe years, he's gonna turn 100 years old. He's tired. He's old. He's alone. And he's been horribly terrorized for 70 years. Paul's been dead, his friend, for about 20 years now. Andrew and Matthew, Peter also, 
His own brother's been dead for 40. Philip for 30. Jude, Simon, Bartholomew, and Thomas for about 15. All of them martyred by Rome except for his brother who was martyred by Herod, who we all know was a Roman puppet. He's been beaten, boiled in oil, forced to drink poison, and this third emperor, Hadrian, now has him sitting on this rock with no food and no water, and he's been there for three years receiving this revelation that we are reading right now. The third attempt to martyr him by three different emperors. John's had it. And he looks at this power and he says, why not? What if we had fought back? Where could we be right now? Maybe if we looked for protection in one of those civil provinces of the empire. Maybe if we prayed to God every day that he'd just wipe out all of our enemies. John, for just a moment, is seduced by the power because it does buy safety. It does buy safety. This happens to all of us. Believers are all still human. Anybody here, after you came to Christ, was all of a sudden not made human anymore? No. (laughs) He's our son of man because we still are what? We're still sons of man and daughters. We're still human. He didn't make us superhuman. And he still left us in a world that is just as dangerous with an evolutionary force that is cannibalizing us day after day. So our instinct, even our our instincts from the day we were born is fight or what? Or flight. And how do we keep that from from taking over? Because when the times hit, they hit hard, we'll go grasping for that power because that power guarantees safety. And I guess, I I don't know, I guess in the last three years, that's what I've noticed the most, is that all of us, all of our background, no matter where we came from, all of our theologies, whether liberal or fundamental or, or politics or ideologies, we've all gone grasping after that, haven't we? We've all lobbed grenades. Why? Because this is as unsafe as we has ever been living in this nation. And no matter how long we've been in the church, nobody predicted this. I'll use a Twitter phrase for you. Nobody had pandemic and our political situation on our bingo cards. I pointed out a few months ago that it's been proven in clinical trials, clinical psychologic, clinical trials, that humans, and they picked certain humans uh, to be able to do this, uh, those who are Rwandan and American and Romanian American, and they showed them images of their enemies being punished. And what they did was that they noticed as they were measuring all of their, their, um, you know, their, their, their functions, uh, EEGs and everything else, that every time that their enemies got punishment or they saw an image of their enemies getting punishment, their brain gave them a shot of dopamine. And you know what dopamine is, right? It's our mood elevator. We have enough dopamine, we're always feeling what? Always feeling good. So, so our body looks for the one thing that plays on our instinct, that plays exactly on our fallen natures. And so that when we see pictures of our enemies being punished, we get rewarded. We get high on other people's punishment. Dutch psychologists wanted to take this even further. And so what they did was that they took soccer fans They took football fans, soccer fans, and they wired their faces. And they showed them images of their favorite team scoring a goal. Guess what happened? What do you think happened to their face? They smiled, 
okay? And then after that, they showed, though, something else wrong happening with the other team. In other words, a mistake or a goal being blocked. And guess what happened? They smiled even bigger. Their own team got big smiles, but their rivals failing got bigger smiles. So let me ask you, do you think this reaction, do you think this nature stops at soccer fans? Do you think it spreads to anyone who is different? Do you think it spreads to gender, race, politics, ideologies, countries, cultures, nations, and the big one, religions? Even different Christians? Other Christians? If we don't think so, if we think that we're above this, then we're not paying attention anymore. That even the good news could allow us to look down on somebody else, label someone else knowing full well that it was the whole world that wonders after the beast. And every time you and I are encountered to use that power, we wonder too if not outright giving in. It's so seductive, it's so close. The dragon has his own trinity, his own spirit, his own Jesus or son. The language is even so close. They worship the dragon for he had given his authority and they worship the beast saying, who is like the beast? Back in Revelation 12, we learned that Michael's name is a sentence that literally says, who is like God? The dragon has his own slogan, who is like the beast? Even the language is so close. He's even described, the beast you saw was and is not and is about to ascend. He's even described in almost the same way. The lamb was the one who is, who was, and is to come. The dragon is, is, is the one you saw is not and is about to ascend, was. I, it's, 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 what is the prophecy trying to tell us? No matter how tempting, remember this. I'll leave you with this. How, no matter how tempting, no matter how many times we succumb, whatever reason we wonder, we need to recognize it, but always remember too, that that power, no matter how seductive it looks, it never works. It never wins. It looks like it. In fact, it looks great for a while, doesn't it? But the kingdom can and will prevail. Love always wins in the end because love has already won. What will stop the fallen selfish nature from using this kingdom's paradigm of power? What will keep it from eating every human alive? Is that we proclaim Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, foolishness to to, to Gentiles. While everyone else turns the cross into a sword to actually use as a weapon of offense, the remnant carries around a what? We carry around a towel and we serve. And we look pretty foolish doing it. But right now, as you and I leave this place with this in mind, with this in our hearts, my prayer is that you all become the biggest fools I've ever seen or met. That we all become the biggest fools that you've ever come across. We're fools for Christ. The beast is going to look like he always is winning. And the temptation to want to be on the winning team, ah, man, but we're here together, we all have our towels. And rather than fight with the sword, rather than fight each other, let's serve.
Let's sacrifice. Let's let him take care of that. I'll leave you just a little illustration because I know that there are still some people, maybe not in this room, but maybe some people who will see this later are still disappointed that I didn't name that other church. I was in a district once. I was in a town. When I first got there, I went looking for a ministerial association and I found out there were two in town. The one was, there was one that was pretty large and it was made up of all the mainstream uh, churches, the evangelical churches, Southern Baptist Church of Christ. We had a very large non-denominational Bible church in that town and it had a staff of like five and they were all members of that, you know. And I, I didn't get around to, to their meeting. They only met once a month and so in the meantime, I met the other group and the other group only had three people in it. Had the Episcopalian pastor, the United Methodist pastor and Father Bruce, St. Anthony's priest. And the reason I found out that all three of them were together and weren't members of the other group is that they had all left because the other group got doctrinal. The other group actually wanted to kick one of the other members out because they didn't feel that they had enough Christian doctrine to be able to be in this organization. And when that happened, these three said, eh, I'll see you. And I'm sure it wasn't the first encounter that they had had like this. I'm sure that they were looking for a reason to go, and they finally did. And the pastor, and my predecessor that was there, he belonged to that group. And he said, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna tell you what you wanna do. He said, just, just give this group a chance. And it was, it was beautiful. We were together for three years. We met uh, once a month. There were other times where we met almost once a week. And one of the things, one of the highlights was that I'll always remember is that there was a, it wasn't a monastery, but it was an abbey that was over on the coast. And um, Bruce got this, got permission, he got the keys to it, and he took us all over there, over to the coast. It's beautiful, high up on a cliff, over on the Mendocino coast. It's just beautiful you know, uh, place. And we went and we spent four hours there doing nothing but communing with God, praying for each other, and just walking, you know, the grounds. It was, it was beautiful. We, we began to develop a relationship. I, I was proud to call each and every one of them my friend. As a matter of fact, when, when the Episcopal Church built their brand new sanctuary, and the thing was, was that they used to meet in this, <laughs> they used to meet in this little uh, building that used to be uh, the building of the local utility company. And they built the sanctuary and it was close and it was right over on the main street. So they always believed that what they did was that instead of building a parking lot, they built this garden and they wanted it for the community because they said our church is, is right in the middle of the community. We wanted to give this back to them. When they dedicated that sanctuary, I was invited to sit with all the other Episcopalian clergy. I was the only one not wearing vestments. <laughs> and they allowed me to sit with them in order to dedicate this new sanctuary. Go back to Bruce. Father Bruce uh, called one day and he was extremely upset, horribly upset. And just, just railing, I didn't, I didn't know what had happened. And, and he had another congregation in another little town that was just at place. And what had happened the week before was that they were all in church worshiping. And when they came back out, somebody who claimed to be the remnant had taken copies of the great controversy and put them on all the cars in that parking lot. And there were some that even had the windows down and they even placed it inside the car in the seats. You know, it wasn't, even the, it wasn't even the great controversy from the Review and Herald or from the Pacific Press. It was done by one of these independent companies that cleverly put in uh, pictures and conclusions and everything of their own. And I'd never seen him so angry. And I'd never seen him so hurt. And I heard those words, I heard those words. He said, you know, he said, I haven't been a priest for very long. He was, <laughs> he was a Jewish convert to Catholicism and became a priest. He said, I haven't, he said, but you know, in other places that I've been, I've heard about you Adventists. And he said, I thought we were different. I lost a friend that day. We've never spoken since. And it still hurts. So forgive me 
for not feeling good about calling out somebody who may or may not even have anything to do with what the prophecy says the beast is doing. And when you're talking about that other church, you're also talking about family that I have. And neighbors, all of yours. And if you still think that trying to anchor them with what happened to them in their medieval history is a way to evangelize them, I'm sorry, it's 178 years later and I don't think we've convinced any one of them. We do not win this way. We serve, we sacrifice, we love. In this they will know. So the reason why I picked John, because John's the only one that says, in this they will know that you are my disciples. If you have love for one another, and we can find another way. Thank you for holding on again. 